So good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you all for coming. Um, uh, my name is Dan Herrick. I'm one of the sleep doctors here at Dartmouth. Um, and uh, you may or may not know, but we're located in the new Heater Road building. It's just a mile down from the hospital, the outpatient center. So we moved into that space a couple years ago now and, and, uh, and really liking it down there. So I'm very happy to be here talking to you today uh, about the importance of sleep. Um, before we get started, I want to make sure everyone has a copy of this recommendation form. Mm -hmm. And on the back is the F-word sleepiness scale, because we're going to go over it kind of together during the presentation. Does anyone not have one? Where's the other one? It's this one. Oh, this one. Got it. Yeah, yeah it's on, and the back side has kind of the list of questions. So I want to make sure everyone has that. Okay? All right. And um, just a little... It's a, a brief introduction. So sleep medicine is a very multidisciplinary field. Um, you can kind of come into it from several different other specialties. Um, I was trained in psychiatry, um, and the other physicians um, in our sleep center are pulmonologists, so uh, pulmonary physicians. Uh, we have a neurologist. We've had family medicine. So um, I did my training in psychiatry and sleep medicine here at Dartmouth um, and then stayed on as, as staff. So I, I definitely like it up here. So let's talk about the importance of sleep and particularly how sleep changes um, and how to optimize sleep quality as, as people age. So here's an outline uh, for the talk. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, normal uh, changes that occur with aging. Um, I wonder if there's a way to... There we go. Um, we're going to talk about uh, normal changes of sleep with aging. Uh, we're going to distinguish sleepiness versus fatigue and what that means, why, why, why it matters, what are the causes of fatigue, what are the causes of sleepiness, um, and then probably everyone's favorite topic is insomnia. Okay, we'll get to that. So let's start with the normal changes of aging. So this is a list, and I don't expect you to understand all of these things, but this we're going to go through each one individually. These are the changes that happen physiologically uh, in our in our brains and our sleep architecture as people age. So what does this mean? So phase advance. Sleep phase refers to kind of the natural time that your body wants to sleep. Okay, for for average people, it's anywhere from 10 to 11 to 6 to 7 in the morning. Okay. If people are delayed, they tend to be night owls, okay? Advanced means they're kind of the, the early bird or the lark, as we call them. So it's a natural progression for our brains to like sleeping a little earlier. So uh, getting sleep, sleepy earlier in the evening um, and having difficulty uh, sleeping in the early morning hours, okay? Yes? Could you back up half a step and tell me why aging affects any of these things? Is there a physiological reason under there that aging does? That's a good question. So the question, um, in case I just want to make sure everyone heard it, is why does sleep change at all with age? You know, what's, what's underlying that? And I think, you know, there's a lot of research in this area figuring out exactly why. Um, I think the bottom line, I mean, is sleep comes from our brains um, and different areas of, of the brain uh, drive sleep and wakefulness. Um, and there's a lot of changes in the brain and throughout life, um, and, and I think it, it, that's what underlies these changes. So um, the sleep-wake centers either 
changing you know, how, how they're functioning, or is there a loss of neurons in those centers? I don't think we really know, but it comes from changes in the brain is the bottom line. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. The other thing that changes is sleep efficiency, which is a term that we use to define how you know, efficient you are at sleeping. So you take the time that you're asleep, divide it by the time in bed, and that's your sleep efficiency. So uh, mostly this is due to more nighttime awakenings. So there's something about that sleep-wake balance in the brain, uh, and it's just, as we age, it's harder to maintain consolidated sleep throughout the night. So an element of that is, is normal. So that's natural. That's interesting. So you expect that. We do expect that to some degree. Oh. <clears throat> and the total time spent asleep decreases. And when I say that, I mean at night, okay? And it's, it's because of this difficulty consolidating sleep and maintaining sleep during the night. But that can partially be compensated for by increased napping during the day. So you might hear that napping is bad and should never be done, and that's not necessarily true, so we'll, we'll talk about that, okay? Daytime sleep latency refers to how quickly one falls asleep during the day, um, and the t that time is reduced, so you fall asleep more easily. There's more sleepiness with aging. And then what about how long it takes to sleep at night? Well, of course, that's increased, right? So <laughs> it's easier to fall asleep during the day, a little tougher at night. Or that might not change. Something interesting is that what we call uh, REM latency, or how long it takes your brain to get into dream sleep, is reduced. So you enter dream sleep more quickly as the brain ages. And then slow wave sleep, which is what we refer to as deep sleep, uh, just linearly decreases with age. So you have children who have a huge percentage of slow wave deep sleep, uh, less so in adolescence, less so in early adulthood, and that just continually gets less and less. Is um, it more helpful to be in deep sleep than REM sleep? You know, it's deep sleep is associated with you know, again, we don't, we don't really know, but the research supports that deep sleep is associated with restorative processes in the body, um, so physically recharging and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, it, so I think they're both, so deep sleep, you know, other non-REM sleep and REM sleep all have their purpose. Um, deep sleep often does feel refreshing. What's the purpose of dream sleep? Again, lots of theories. Um, some people say it has to do with emotional processing. Um, some people think it has to do with uh, memory consolidation. So, uh, you know, you go through your day and you're getting a lot of information in a lot of different ways. And during dream sleep, maybe some of those connections are reinforced and the ones that aren't necessary are, are weeded out, that kind of thing. You know, again, we not sure, but those are kind of some interesting thoughts. And as far as the slow wave sleep, goes, if you take a, a normal young adult and do a sleep study on them, they're going to have about 20% of their total sleep time is going to be this deep, slow-wave sleep, whereas if you take a 70-year-old and do a sleep study, about 10%. So that just represents that linear you know, loss of, of deep sleep. So to, to summarize, what's increased with aging is napping during the day, 
uh, and nighttime awakenings, okay? What's decreased is total sleep time, sleep efficiency during the night, how long it takes to get to dream sleep, the total amount of slow wave sleep, and how long it takes to fall asleep during the day, so what's more sleepiness. So what does that mean, okay? So those are the physiological changes, but what's normal, okay? So common complaints that um, you know, I hear in the sleep clinic um, from, from any age, but particularly older adults, are things like, I can't stay asleep. I sleep less than I used to, I'm tired during the day, I'm napping more during the day. So as you can see, I mean, these complaints often, you know, they could just be normal. So someone says, I can't stay asleep at night, that just might be a normal part of aging. Or I'm more tired during the day, okay? You know, we've talked about that that can just be normal, but so where's that, where's that line, okay? And really what it gets down to is, you know, if you're noticing, you know, you're waking up a few more times during the night, but you still feel rested in the morning and it's not impacting your daytime functioning, that's normal, I'm not worried about that. It's when these things start to impact um, either cognitive processes, so you're not sleeping well, so you can't focus as well, or you, know, you feel like because of the sleep issues, your memory's not as sharp as it was, uh, or you're so sleepy during the day and fatigued that you can't engage in the activities you wanna do. So once it starts to interfere with you know, what you want to do during, in your life or with cognitive functioning, that's when we need to look more closely at whether there is something underlying the issue. So let's talk about excessive sleepiness and fatigue during the day. So when people come to the sleep clinic and they say, I'm tired, I'm just so tired during the day, that can mean different things. And what we call it doesn't really matter, but the symptoms kind of differentiate sleep disorders from, from other causes. And sleepiness, to me, is the feeling where you have trouble staying awake. So you sit down in the afternoon to read a book or watch TV and you're kind of dozing off, okay? Um, during relaxing activities, it's hard to stay awake. Uh, fatigue, on the other hand, is general low energy. So you can feel physically exhausted, you're mentally exhausted, um, you don't have the energy to get up and do things, but you're not falling asleep. It's not a matter of maintaining wakefulness. Um, and that's what I call fatigue, okay? So how do you know? Some, you can have both. Some people have both. But that's where the Epworth sleepiness scale comes in. So this is the scale that is on the back of that uh, recommendations page that I talked about. And uh, let's just take a minute to kind of go through it and think about it. So what this scale asks you to do is rate how likely you are to doze off in these different situations. So how likely you actually are, are to fall asleep. And try to think about how these situations would affect you during the you know, waking daytime hours. So not right before bedtime, but during the day. And then you rate each one of these on a scale. So zero is, oh, I would never doze off in that situation. And then one, two, or three corresponds to a slight, moderate, or high chance of dozing, okay? So number one is sitting and reading. Two, watching TV. Three is if you're sitting inactively in a public place. So I give patients the example of the waiting room when they come for an appointment or if they're in a theater, for example. Uh, number four is the, if you're a passenger in the car for about an hour, how likely are you to doze off? And number five 
is if you get the chance to lie down and rest in the afternoon, you know, will you just kind of lay there and, and rest, or do you? how likely are you to fall asleep? Number six, sitting and talking to someone. Number seven, sitting quietly after lunch. And number eight, you're driving in a car, but you're stopped for a few minutes in traffic, okay? <laughs> you want us to do this now? I think you certainly should. Yeah, I think oh, you should. Okay. Yeah, so that then we can figure out what the score is. So go through each of these and just rate yourself. Zero would never doze off. One, two, or three. And then total up those numbers to, to get the final score. I'll give you just a minute to do that. And this is at no particular time during the day because if I have a glass of wine <clears> with dinner, Okay, mm -hmm. and I sit down and read. Mm -hmm. An hour later, I'm very, you know, likely to yeah. doze off. But you know, morning or afternoon is a different. So I would take mm -hmm. that. I'd probably give that a one or a slight chance. You know, I, you know. <laughs> I mean, if it's if it's time for bed and you find yourself dozing off, that's that's probably not that's probably not a problem. What do you do if the your issue isn't on this list? <laughs> then, my, my issue is getting to sleep when I go to bed at night. Okay, then put zeros down and okay. stay tuned. Thank you. <laughs> Are you going to address circadian rhythms? You know, I, I'm, I'm asking particularly because my daughter has sort of an inverted schedule, which I think is bad, okay. which is yeah. up at night and sleep all morning. And sleeps all morning. Uh, I, I, I'm happy to address that kind of at the end of the talk. I don't have any slides specifically about it, but I think it's very interesting, so we can talk about it. All right, so let's, so you, you figure out your total score of sleepiness, okay? And here's what the scores mean. Between zero and 10, you, you probably, you know, you're less likely to have a problem with sleepiness, okay? 10 to 14 is getting into that range where we might want to think about what's going on and ask more questions. If it's over 14, so 15 and above, that in and of itself is reason enough to come in and talk to one of us in the sleep department because we got to figure out what's going on. Um, and you know, that degree of sleepiness is not normal part of aging. So that's something where we need to look at, are you sleeping enough? Is there a sleep disorder? That kind of thing. So that should help. Um, kind of figure out, is it more fatigue, is it more sleepiness, and uh, we'll talk about what that means. I do want to say something about drowsy driving, so that number eight question about likelihood of dozing off. Uh, you know, driving is one of those activities when it's kind of monotonous, um, kind of lulling. It's a common time for people to get a little sleepy. And so I talk to everybody in the sleep clinic about this because it's a big safety issue. If you're sleepy, you shouldn't drive. Uh, people that are drowsy have similar reaction times and judgment as people who are intoxicated with alcohol, so it's, it's similar to driving under the influence. So what I, what I tell people, and I do this myself, if I'm driving along and I start to get drowsy, I don't push through to my destination. You have to find an area to pull over. Um, if you can have caffeine and it helps you stay alert, that's an option. Uh, pulling over and switching with another driver in the car, of course, that's an option. Or pulling over to a safe, you know, parking area or rest stop, locking the doors and taking a 10 or 15 minute nap, okay, is, is refreshing enough to safely keep driving. The things that do not work 
are rolling down the windows, turning up the radio. I've had patients tell me they actually slap themselves away. Um, you know, those are distracting techniques that might get you to the pullover area, but they're not going to keep you awake, okay? And I think that's important to remember. All it takes is a second of inattention, and, you know, it could be a fatal accident. So let's talk about the causes of fatigue first. So fatigue um, is, the list of things that can cause fatigue is just probably three or four pages long, okay? So any medical condition, any mental health condition um, can, can contribute to fatigue, and that could be heart or lung problems, arthritis, dementia, depression, anxiety, chronic pain, um, or sleep disorders. So it's not a one-to-one -one for sure thing. I mean, sometimes sleep disorders can present with fatigue, so uh, we don't rule that out. But if it's fatigue, I encourage people to, to go through and make sure their other medical conditions are well controlled. Okay, so have you talked to your primary doctor about things like anemia or thyroid or those kind of things? Causes of sleepiness are more in the realm of sleep medicine and what we deal with on a, on a daily basis. And the most common things that I'm going to touch on today are getting, not getting enough sleep, effects of medication, obstructive sleep apnea, uh, and restless leg sim symptoms. And then we're going to get to the insomnia, which I think might apply to your question. So insufficient sleep. Every one of us is kind of born with an individual sleep need, okay? And for most people, the vast majority of people, that's between seven and nine hours, okay? So I might be an eight-hour sleeper, let's say, um, and you might be a seven-hour sleeper. So you sleep seven hours, you feel rested, you're good throughout the day, and that's how it's been your whole life, okay? If I get seven hours of sleep a night and I'm an eight-hour sleeper, I'm going to be sleep-deprived, okay? So... Um, and, and that doesn't really change over time. So uh, it's kind of something that we're, that we're born with, and it doesn't really change with age. What, what does change, as we talked about, was that trouble staying asleep and consolidating sleep at night. And that's why you know, brief 15 to 20 minute daytime naps can help make up for some of that sleep that we're not getting at night. Okay. The list of medications that can cause sleepiness is quite long, and I put up some kind of classic, typical examples. And in, you know, you have the um, the benzodiazepines are medications that are used for insomnia or anxiety. Uh, they're they certainly contribute to sleepiness. Things, other sleep medicines like Ambien or Lunesta, of course. Um, Antipsychotic medications uh, like Haldol, Seroquel, Risperdal, definitely big offenders here pain medications like Oxycontin, uh, beta blockers um, like propranolol, toprol, very common medications for blood pressure and heart rate can cause sleepiness and fatigue. Um, Over-the-counter allergy medicines like Benadryl, some of these sedating antidepressants like Trazodone or Remeron, um, and of course alcohol. Um, so if I see somebody who's taking, let's say, Benadryl throughout the day, or they're taking Ativan a couple times a day for anxiety and they're sleepy, that definitely goes into my assessment of what, what's causing their sleepiness. And sometimes it's not the only thing, but it's something to think about. 
So let's take a minute to talk about obstructive sleep apnea. How many of you know someone or you yourselves have a CPAP machine for sleep apnea? So either yourself or you know someone? Yeah. Okay. It's a pretty common condition, okay? And what obstructive sleep apnea is, is the upper airway muscles, you know, when we go to sleep, all of our muscles relax, that's normal. And your upper airway muscles relax as well. So if you have a crowded airway and you go to sleep, there's a repetitive collapse of that airway that you're trying to breathe against. And it's obstructive, um, occurs during sleep, and apnea means cessation of breathing. So you're not breathing because of that obstruction. It's pretty common. Um, so depending on your definition of sleep apnea, it can be up to 20% of people that have it. So one in five have some degree of, of sleep apnea. And there was a study that was done in healthy, normal weight adults, okay, so people that don't have symptoms um, and don't have health problems. 3% of 60-year-olds had sleep apnea, 33% of 70-year-olds, and 40% of 80-year-olds had sleep apnea, okay, even without comorbidities or symptoms, okay? And, and to me, I mean, I think the reason for that is the tissues in our in our upper airway, just like the tissues everywhere else in our body, can you know continue to age and aren't as uh, strong and elastic as we get older, and I think that contributes to some of the sleep apnea. And the reason that sleep apnea is important, in addition to quality of sleep and quality of life, is that it's been asso associated with increased mortality, risk for stroke, uh, cognitive abnormalities, high blood pressure coronary artery disease, and there's certainly a correlation with heart failure, um, both sleep apnea contributing to heart failure, but also people that have heart failure um, can have very uh, disruptive sleep due to breathing issues, so it's kind of a bi-directional relationship. In a younger person that is pretty severely overweight, that's the reason why that they have trouble sleeping too? There's kind of two primary things that contribute to sleep apnea. One is being overweight or obese because you know, we kind of gain weight everywhere, including the neck, and the abdominal obesity can push on your lungs at night, so that contributes. But also, it's upper airway anatomy as well. So I see young kids um, who are completely normal weight, um, but because of the shape of their chin or the way that their soft palate falls against the tongue, they just have a crowded airway, and so they have sleep apnea for that reason. So it's two, those two things are the biggest contributors. Yes? Uh, what about deviated septum? Is that pretty much, is it pretty much standard that that person's going to have? So that's a good question. So the question was about um, a deviated nasal septum, and does that contribute to sleep apnea? Uh, the short answer is, is no. Um, what that can happen, you know, that does lead to kind of subtle, very upper airway obstruction. So what I might see on a sleep study in someone who has a deviated septum is their airflow decreases and they wake up from sleep. But most sleep apnea happens from here to here in the upper airway. So if sleep apnea is very mild and it's not associated with oxygen level drops, that might be a target for therapy, but usually not. So what are the symptoms of sleep apnea? Uh, if you're not getting quality sleep at night, people feel sleepy during the day, so that goes back to the sleepiness scale that we did, okay? Um, poor concentration, inattention, cognitive symptoms. Waking up with a headache that you did not have when you went to sleep uh, is another indicator. 
pe people who are very restless during sleep, loud snoring usually is present, but not necessarily. And people have the sensation of waking up choking or gasping, which is very unpleasant. Um, that can, that's a classic symptom. So how do we diagnose it? Uh, we want you to come, uh, we, you know, we see people first for an evaluation and talk about all these symptoms and sleep patterns and things like that. And if we suspect sleep apnea, we'll do a sleep study. Um, has anyone here had a sleep study? Just out of curiosity, okay, we have one. So you come into the lab, we put little sticker electrodes on your head, around your eyes, all wired up. Nothing invasive, but kind of a little uncomfortable. And we know it's not gonna be like a perfect night at home, okay? Um, the thing about sleep apnea is if you have it, it's going to present when you fall asleep. So we don't need to wait for it to happen. We don't need eight solid hours of sleep to see if it's there. We get plenty of information. But you know, our lab is very nice, kind of like a no-frills hotel, and you get your own room, and you know, just come and sleep for the night, and then that will give us the information. And then what do we do? Let's say you have sleep apnea, okay? Um, you know, we classify it by severity, so it's mild, moderate, or severe. And the treatment options are uh, positive airway pressure, like the CPAP machines that I asked about. Um, they're also BiPAP uh, machines, which is similar. Uh, sometimes people can go to see a dentist and get fit with an oral appliance that tries to keep the airway open by pushing the jaw forward, okay? That requires to have good solid dentition to kind of anchor the oral appliance, but it's a reasonable option for a lot of people. I usually don't recommend surgery because it's, they're, they're not really effective surgeries for sleep apnea, and the ones that are effective are very invasive and not worth the risk, in, in my opinion. And of course, the conservative things we can do are, you know, always lose weight is helpful. Uh, try to avoid alcohol and sedating medications. Um, and try to, you know, if, if you have sleep apnea, trying to sleep on your side more than on your back because sleep apnea is worse on your back. Those are the conservative things we can do. Any questions about sleep apnea? Um, so let's talk about restless leg syndrome. So restless leg syndrome um, is defined as spontaneous, continuous leg movements um, associated with some kind of unpleasant sensation. And it has to occur with an urge to move the legs that kind of builds up if, you're, if you don't move them. Symptoms are typically worse during rest and at night. And if you do move the legs, it goes away, at least temporarily, okay? Um, often there's a sleep disturbance here. So when people have those restless legs uh, symptoms, a lot of times during the night, their legs are kind of jerking and kicking as well. And we call those periodic limb movements of sleep. It's a pretty common symptom. So mild symptoms occur in up to 15% of the population, okay? Uh, it tends to be more common in women. And again, the reason I'm talking about it today is that it's more prevalent with age. So if we take someone in their 20s, there's a 3% chance that they have these symptoms. Uh, between the ages of 30 and 79, it's quite a range, but 10%, uh, and above 80, 19%. So again, it's kind of showing that progression with age. Most cases of restless legs are just what we call idiopathic, which means we're not sure what causes it. You know, you just, you have it because you do, and, and we treat it. Um, but I did want to mention some of the medical disorders that can be associated with restless legs, just so that we're aware. Uh, when people have low iron, anemia, or low iron for other reasons, that can contribute to restless legs. 
uh, chronic kidney problems can cause restless legs. A lot of times people with diabetes who have peripheral neuropathy or pain and tingling in their legs, that can often be associated with restless leg syndrome. Parkinson's disease is, is classically associated with this, um, as are uh, things like rheumatoid arthritis and fibromyalgia. And also people with venous insufficiency, so bad veins or varicose veins can be more prone to having restless legs. So those are some of the things that if they're present, we want to get those things under control. Um, and then if the restlessness is still a problem, we can address it specifically. And again, the symptoms to look for to know if this is a problem for you are uh, significant discomfort in the legs that occurs when you're at rest and is immediately relieved by movement. Typically, these symptoms are in the lower legs, so below the knee um, and in both legs at the same time. It's very difficult for people to describe this feeling, um, so I hear things like crawling, creepy crawly, pulling, itching, you know, it's, it's difficult to express what these symptoms are to someone who doesn't experience it. Um, and usually the symptoms are worse at the end of the day and, and maximal at night, okay? And the way to diagnose it is, is talking to the physician. So he'll ask you questions about when the symptoms happen, what is it like, what makes it better, those kind of things. And it's based on history, so we don't do a test for restless leg syndrome. <coughs> And the way to approach treatment is addressing those underlying medical issues if they're present. Uh, we can talk about iron supplementation, which has been shown to be helpful. Um, alerting activities, so sometimes symptoms occur out of, out of boredom. Um, and so focusing on things like video games or crossword puzzles. Caffeine, nicotine, alcohol makes restless legs worse, so avoiding those things. Getting regular exercise leg massage, you know, heating pads, those things can be helpful. Those are kind of the non-medication options to help improve restless leg symptoms. And there are prescription medications out there uh, which can be helpful. You know, all medications come with risks and side effects, but uh, they are out there if, if the restless legs aren't controlled with these measures. Questions about restless leg syndrome? Yeah. Does it always have to be accompanied by the discomfort? I mean, can it just be the movement? Or? The definition does require some kind of unpleasant sensation, okay? Um, and that can be different things. That can be tingling, prickling. Um, that being said, I do see people where it's just this urge to move their legs. Um, and if, it, if the other uh, features fit, like it's more common at night, and moving the legs helps, you know, I'm going to probably treat that like restless legs. Yes? When they have it, if they fall asleep or jerky movements in the legs, yes. is that painful enough to awaken them? Usually not, okay? So se severe cases of restless legs can certainly interfere with sleep and wake people up, okay? But when I talk about those jerking limb movements, it's usually something that bothers the bed partner more than it's bothering the patient. So. Uh, even even people that don't have restless leg symptoms will see those kind of periodic kicking during the night, and it's we don't attribute it much to it. No, oh, it's not necessarily restless legs. No. Correct. So if you have somebody who is very restless at night and kicking regularly, but they don't have these symptoms when they're awake, that's not restless legs. 
that's a certain phase of sleep that are active? Um, it tends to be it tends to be more common in the first part of the night during non-dream sleep, um, but it's not you know it's not correlated just with one phase of sleep or anything like that. So people who have restless leg syndrome would have these symptoms during the daytime as well. Uh, so the question was, you know, would patients with restless legs have these symptoms during the day? Uh, not, not necessarily during the day. I mean, they could be at night, which they typically are. But the person has to be aware of the problem. They have to be symptomatic in order to call it restless leg symptoms. So if somebody only kicks at night, that's different. That's like periodic limb movements, and that's problematic for the bed partner. But if that person who's kicking doesn't have any complaints about leg discomfort or moving the legs, it's not restless leg symptoms. Uh, I, I'm thinking of someone that I worked with who had this, and, uh, and it was present during the day. Like if she was sitting, mm -hmm. um, she would have that urge or that feeling. So Sure. So yes, yeah, symptoms can occur during the day, okay. um, and often in severe cases do. Um, absolutely. It's just that they, there's a circadian component to it, so it tends to be more at night. But you certainly can have those feelings that we talked about during the daytime hours. Okay. One more question. Oh, sure. The medications used are like medicines for Parkinson's? Or? They are. Um, so the, the typical medications uh, that are FDA approved are what we call dopamine agonists. So things like Mirapex or Requip, uh, the generic are uh, Pramipexol and Ropinerol. And they're medications that are used in people with Parkinson's disease. For restless legs, we use them at much lower doses. Um, and another medication that is not FDA approved, but we, we use it pretty commonly, so it's off-label use, is Gabapentin or Neurontin. Um, that can be very helpful for restless legs as well. Why would you use it if it's not approved by the FDA? <laughs> <laughs> FDA, approval is kind, yeah, <laughs> FDA approval is kind of uh, an interesting thing and, and has to do basically with, you know, have there been tests or, tests or studies wow. that show it's effective? Yeah. And for some of these older generic medications, those studies don't exist, um, but we find clinically that the medications are very helpful. So. There, it's in the American Academy of Sleep Medicine practice parameters, if that feels, makes you feel like that. <laughs> What's the connection between Parkinson, using Parkinson's uh, meds and, uh, and, the, restless and legs. the restless leg? I'm particularly interested in Mirapex because of some of the side effects yeah. that a friend experienced very severely. Yeah. So the question was, what's the correlation between yeah. Parkinson's and restless legs yeah. and the medications? Uh, the, the correlation is the pathophysiology, so what's going on in the brain. Both conditions are associated with low dopamine levels, um, and so these medications that we use are dopamine acting. It's kind of replacing some of that dopamine activity. Um, they can be associated with side effects. Um, yeah, that's, that's the correlation. You, know, you mentioned dopamine. It seemed to me that I heard that uh, exercise increases the dopamine, yet they say don't exercise if we're going to sleep. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of counterintuitive there. Yeah. Um, so dopamine actually is not, <coughs> it's a neurotransmitter that promotes wakefulness, okay? So um, 
I'm not 100% sure about the correlation of exercise and dopamine. If there probably is a correlation, but I just I'm not sure about it. Um, but dopamine is a weight-promoting Oh, so you want a low dopamine level rather than a high one. If we're talking about sleep, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. If we're talking about the movement or the restless legs, that's kind of a, under a separate category. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. All right, you guys ready to talk about insomnia? Oh, sure. Do people who have restless leg syndrome tend to develop Parkinson's? Is there a correlation? That's a very good question. No. No. It's just the, that correlation. So the question, I just want to make sure people who are, this is being broadcast to hear the question, is does restless leg mean that people are at risk for developing Parkinson's disease? And that's not the case, okay? Um, the only reason there's that association is because in people with Parkinson's disease, you're losing dopamine nerve cells, and because of that, they develop restless legs. But you can just have restless legs without being at risk for Parkinson's. It's just the physiology that's similar. Yes? Uh, I have a question back on, before we get into the next topic, sure. on um, sleep apnea. Yeah. The, the people that get the oral appliance, do, do they find it difficult to, to sleep with that? I mean, is it, is it a pain in the neck? Too? Yeah. So the question was about treatments for obstructive sleep apnea. Do people with the oral appliance find that cumbersome or difficult to sleep with? Um, it's, uh, I would say in general, no. I think it depends on the person. A lot of people pr would like the idea of that better than like a mask mm -hmm. with a CPAP machine, and so sometimes that's what motivates them to pursue the oral appliance. It's really patient dependent, um, and, and yeah, I mean that's that's kind of, it's, it depends on what's most cumbersome to you. Some people would prefer the mask. Um, and it's and an oral appliance certainly isn't nothing, but it's a little less cumbersome for some people. Yeah. Any clues as to why restless legs is more common in women than men? Hmm. It's probably hormonal, <laughs> but more than that, I don't I don't know. It's meaning 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 there's probably an association with the different uh, hormones in, in women, but I don't know specifically. All right, so let's talk about insomnia. So what's the, what is the definition of insomnia? Okay, most people, most people know uh, it's trouble sleeping. So it's trouble falling asleep, or trouble staying asleep, or waking up too early when you don't want to be awake, um, associated with some kind of daytime consequence, okay? So if somebody has trouble falling asleep and they're feeling fatigued during the day, or trouble focusing, or they feel that it's affecting their mood, you know, insomnia can affect a lot of different areas of functioning. So all you need is one of those, plus a concern about sleep, and, and that's a diagnosis of insomnia. So it's pretty common, and, and it's an easy diagnosis to make. What is not, you know, the, the third bullet down here, adequate time allowed for sleep, that's important, okay? So insomnia is not the same as sleep deprivation. So if someone's only sleeping five hours a night because that's all they're allowing themselves, they're just sleep deprived, They're not, they don't have insomnia. Insomnia is you're allowing a solid sleep window, but you're just not sleeping, okay? It's one of the most common medical complaints in all ages, okay? Um, and about 10% of people go on to develop chronic insomnia that lasts for a few weeks, 
and oftentimes several months or even years, okay? And again, it's important for this talk because it's something that increases with age. And there was one study that looked at older adults and 57% of those people had some complaint or concern about their sleep, their insomnia. Only 12% of them said, my sleep's normal. So it's a, big, it's a big common concern for a lot of people. How do we, how do we treat insomnia? Um, there's, two, there's two main ways to target uh, insomnia. One is with behavioral measures. And what I mean by that is being very strict about sleep scheduling and about behaviors before bed and during the night and during the day. Um, and the other are uh, medications to help with sleep. And then we'll talk a little bit about you know, any underlying disorder that could, that's contributing to any kind of discomfort needs to be addressed, okay? And we'll talk about that. Um, and a lot of times, some of the medications that people are taking are actually contributing to, to the insomnia. So you wanna look at the medications that you're actually using. So what are the, you know, what medical conditions or chronic disorders can cause insomnia? Pretty much anything. <laughs> I mean, one of the basic things we need for a good night of sleep is feeling comfortable. So if you're waking up because uh, you're not breathing well, or because of arthritis pain, or anxiety, uh, getting up to go to the bathroom, that's going to impact sleep quality, okay? So it's important for uh, both patients and their primary doctors to think about that when there's an insomnia complaint. You know, what, are, what is this person's medical history and are we optimally managing all of their medical conditions, okay? And then think about what medications you may be taking that could lead to sleep problems, okay? And I have, I have a partial list here. Um, so alcohol is not, is not the friend of a good night of sleep, okay? Um, alcohol is a central nervous system depressant, so it does, it does make people drowsy and make them sleep, okay? But then what happens is your body's metabolizing that alcohol and it's very difficult to stay asleep for the second half of the night. It changes your sleep architecture, so you're not getting the good restorative stages of sleep. Um, so alcohol is definitely uh, a big offender for insomnia symptoms. Uh, sometimes, sometimes beta blockers can contribute to insomnia or um, even nightmares sometimes that can disrupt sleep. You know, caffeine, obviously, we don't want you drinking coffee before bed. Um, nicotine, steroids, stimulants. One of the common um, medications that I see people taking at night are antidepressant medications. Um, and, and specifically, there's a couple, uh, Wellbutrin or Bupropion. Uh, another one is Venlafaxine or Effexor. Those tend to be very activating for people. And so um, if they're taking them at night, I often recommend moving those to morning dosing, okay? Um, it's usually not the whole answer, or, or, but it can be helpful. So take a look at the medication regimen with your doctor and ask, is there anything activating here? Um, and put the weight-promoting medicines in the morning and put the sedating medicines at night, right? It's an easy thing that can help. What is the uh, connection between the thyroid hormone and insomnia? Uh, just that um, being being hyperthyroid, so being over-replaced 
with thyroid can, can cause insomnia. It's activating in general for the metabolism. Um, and for some people, just the replacement itself uh, can be activating. So maybe taking that in the morning might be a good idea. But not hypothyroid. Hypothyroidism, no. That would be more associated with fatigue. Uh, the key there is that if you, do, if you do have hypothyroidism or you're on replacement therapy and you're having insomnia, just making sure with your doctor. You know, usually primary doctors are very good about keeping track of that and making sure your levels are normal, um, but you want to be sure of that. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that you had arthritis on this list and also on a previous list, um, which was just the opposite of, uh, of oh. you know, insomnia. Correct. Uh, arthritis is a cause keeping, pe making people sleepy. Yeah. No, only yeah. by anybody too. Yeah. So, well, so uh, the question was about the arthritis and a different, <coughs> so, so what I, uh, here I had uh, arthritis as a potential cause of insomnia, right? right? Um, and before, was it when we were talking about pain medication? It was about fatigue and, and oh, okay. uh, it was listed there and I didn't bring it up then, but um, yep. I do have a lot of arthritis. Right. So, so yeah. So the way, so the question was about you know specific, you know specifically arthritis and how that can impact daytime and, and nighttime, you know quality. Um, so at night, it, the reason it contributes to insomnia is if there's discomfort or pain, and because of the discomfort and pain, that can lead to fatigue during the day. Um, that fatigue can also okay. be due to the okay. insomnia. So it's more about how arthritis presents in different times of the, of the, of the day. Thank you. Sure. Question? Yes. Um, when I worked at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, I was given <clears throat> amitriptyline for sleep. Um, and I don't really want to take it anymore, but I tried stopping it. And I only take half, it's like five milligrams. Is that something you recommend for sleep, or should I try? So the question was about uh, medications for sleep, specifically amitriptyline, uh, which is a very commonly used medication for sleep. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about medications for sleep okay. in a bit, and about kind of the benefits and risks, and if you're going to use them, how to use them, and, and things like that. So definitely ask me again if, if okay. we don't address that, okay? okay. So let's talk about the behavioral treatments for insomnia, okay? So one thing to consider is that a lot of times with with retirement comes or or illness or debilitation or these are things that come with age. So dealing with chronic medical issues or um, a lot of time after retirement uh, can lead to these kind of bad habits. So you know, let's just go through them. And, and if these apply to you, these are things that can contribute to insomnia. Okay. So spending long periods of time in bed. Okay. So if somebody goes to bed at, let's say, 9 o'clock at night, and they get out of bed at 8 o'clock in the morning, okay, that's 11 hours. And like I said, most people only need 7 to 9 hours of sleep. So that doesn't surprise me at all that there's insomnia in there somewhere, because your brain just doesn't need that much sleep. So you want to make sure you're not spending too much time in bed. Um, you know, I think a reasonable amount of time is, is 8 to 9 hours or less, kind of depending on the situation. Having an irregular sleep schedule. So our brains love consistency, okay? Um, having a bedtime routine, 
Um, it's more important to get up at the same time every day and just go to bed when you're sleepy. So the bedtime can vary, but it's good to have a fixed wake-up time at least within an hour throughout the week. Trying to force sleep. So sleep is not something that we do, okay? It's not something we make happen. It, it's something that kind of happens naturally. And, you know, I tell people, you know, the things that you do during the day and before bed, you know, you're, you're making it the right environment for sleep, but once it's time to go to sleep, it's not, it's not on you to make it happen. It should just happen naturally. Uh, drinking caffeinated beverages or alcohol near bedtime. So the caffeine, if you have trouble falling asleep, I don't want any caffeine after noon at the latest, okay? Um, and as far as alcohol goes, if you're gonna have a drink, you know, make it several hours before bedtime. Otherwise, you're gonna get into uh, effects on your sleep quality. Uh, smoking should be stopped altogether, uh, but particularly at night because it's a stimulant. And then making sure that the bedroom is the right environment for sleep. So what we recommend for an optimal bedroom uh, environment is cool, quiet, and dark. Okay, so making sure there's not too much light or noise in the room. Uh, persistent concerns or worries at bedtime, uh, that's a big one. Um, kind of people go to sleep and they lay down and that's a time and they start thinking about the day and about the, the next day and the worries on their mind and um, it's, it's common but there are ways to kind of avoid doing that. Uh, lack of exercise, so we talked, we had mentioned exercise before. Um, getting 20 or 30 minutes of aerobic activity during the day increases our drive for that slow wave sleep or deep sleep. So that can be very helpful um, to improve sleep quality. Just not exercise before bed. So that's gonna wake you up. So do it no later, you know, early evening is okay, but morning is better as far as the exercise go. And then I had talked about daytime napping. So if you sleep okay at night, you're just having trouble getting that seven and a half or eight hours, and you're napping for 15 or 20 minutes during the day to make up for that, that is perfectly fine, okay? If you have trouble sleeping at night, like you're taking hours to fall asleep, and you find yourself making up for that by sleeping two, three hours in the afternoon, that's the problematic napping, okay? Because what you're doing is dissipating some of the sleep drive with that afternoon nap and that's contributing to the trouble sleeping at night. But, um, so, so in general, if people have an insomnia complaint, I encourage them not to nap during the day, okay? But, the, but I wanna correlate that with what I said before, which is that if people are sleeping okay at night, uh, you know, short naps during the day are completely fine and expected, okay? I had heard that daytime naps were twice as beneficial as evening. In other words, like 15 minutes in the day, yeah. it's like sleeping an hour extra at night, is that right? Um, so the question was about like the quality or uh, you know the benefit of sleep during the day versus in the evening. Um, I don't think, I wouldn't say that's, tr that's true, that sleeping in the day is more restorative or better for you. It's probably better for your overall sleep pattern, right? Because if you, if you nap closer to your bedtime, it might be harder to fall asleep at night. So a good time for a daytime nap is between 11 and 1, like that kind of range. Um, but as far as quality of sleep probably doesn't make a difference. Yeah. Just a follow-up. Um, <clears throat> I spent a lot of time living in Spain, okay, in, in, in Seville, in southern Spain. And um, typically, 
and I'm wondering if there have been any comparative studies in that kind of culture yeah. where people typically, they, they eat their big meal, you know, two to three in the afternoon, they take a siesta, one of the great inventions of mankind, um, <laughs> and they go back to work at five o'clock. At night, they're out on the streets having tapas and, and drinking beer and, and, and wine, okay? And so they'll sleep a couple hours in the afternoon, and they'll sleep five or six hours at, at night. Yeah. And I'm wondering... Mm -hmm. How does that match up with yeah, what that, Yeah, in terms of insomnia, because yeah. I've never heard any Spaniards complaining about it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's a good question. Um, so I don't, I can't speak to any uh, formal studies that have been done. I, I just, I'm not aware of them. But what I, what I can say is that you know, part of it is uh, you know, culturally driven. So if people are having that siesta for a couple hours in the, in the afternoon and they're sleeping maybe five or six hours at night, feeling rested, able to function, if that's what their friends and family do, there's nothing wrong with that at all. You're getting adequate sleep for the total sleep. number of uh, within a 24 hour period. exactly, yeah. um, and if and you know it doesn't have to be in Spain if that's what you do here and uh, you know you sleep for a couple hours, uh, you have that five or six hour period at night and that's working for you and your and your and your social practices and your life and your family, it's fine, not not a problem. This is getting at people who want to be asleep from 11 to 7 and can't because they're sleeping two to three hours in the afternoon. Uh, other, a different, unrelated question. I've heard um, that you should not read in bed. Do you want to? I do want to address, address that. that. Um, Can I add to I that use of sure. iPhones oh or iPads? Use of iPhones and iPads and as bed. a reading device. As a reading device. Okay. But books? How about paper? <laughs> how do I start? So a lot of these recommendations actually are individual. Okay, because if somebody sits down and reads for 15 or 20 minutes before bed each night and they fall asleep and they sleep okay, then don't let anyone tell you there's a problem yeah, with that. Nice okay, that's, that's fine. Too. That recommendation is for people that struggle with insomnia. So if you put that book down and you're laying in bed for three hours trying to sleep, then it's a problem. Then we need to adhere very strictly to these rules to get your sleep in shape. Okay, so it's a little bit of a if, if you're reading and you're sleeping well and it's not a problem. There's no reason to stop doing that, okay? As far as the iPads, iPhones, devices with light, they're not ideal. Um, and the, the concern here is for, you know, maybe you've heard of the blue wavelength of light from the screens. So um, computer screens, televisions, iPads, they, what's used in the background is, a, is mostly a blue wavelength of light. And that's exactly the wavelength that triggers our brain to think it's daytime. Okay, so again, part of this depends on the individual. So if you're somebody who's quite sensitive to light, and that would be somebody who can't sleep through the sunrise because that light's coming up and waking them up. Or somebody, sometimes people have a little bit of a seasonal component to their mood or sleep patterns. Those people are sensitive to light. They should not be using those kind of devices to read before bed. There are people where I think that uh, they're less sensitive to that light. So um, if, if that's the case, and again, it kind of goes back to if, you're, if you lay down or sit down in bed and play solitaire on the iPad for 15 minutes and that gets you sleepy and you sleep no problem, again, that's not an, that's not an issue. Um, it's for the people that are having trouble sleeping that we need to address 
you know, check off each one of these behavioral things. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes? Can you later or now address the use of amber light to, to help people who are having difficulty? The use of amber light? Amber light. I, I'm, not, about that. I'm not too familiar with that. Can you tell me more about it? Well, I just, I, I, I did a webinar yeah. recently on sleep and doing a lot of that. Yeah. Um, and one, the, one of the big recommendations um, was the use of amber light in the evening, mm -hmm. which is, I guess, you know, almost the opposite of blue light, but mm -hmm. not necessarily. But definitely avoiding blue light. Interesting. That was a very strong recommendation. Yes. Don't use your computer right. or your iPhone. So the use um, of, yeah. But then buying amber light bulbs. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So the question was about, you know, recommendations or products out there that emit amber light instead of blue light in order to uh, facilitate sleep onset in the evening hours. And I think that's probably a reasonable recommendation. I think the general principle here is that at least the hour before bed, you should have low light exposure. So, um, and, and I think that amber light probably, it takes it one step further by eliminating some of the other wavelengths that might be stimulating. Um, so how necessary it is, I, I'm not sure. It might be, you know, if you want to do everything you can, yeah, I think that might be a fun thing to try. Um, but the, the principle is to have low lights uh, in the hour before bedtime. So when we're talking about behavioral uh, treatment of insomnia, a lot of this we've addressed in the questions, but we'll kind of go through each one of these. So good sleep hygiene, these are basic rules for a good night's sleep. And I'm sure that you've heard these over and over again. A lot of people are aware of this, okay? Um, we talked about not spending too much time in bed, so just sleeping enough to feel rested and then get up and out of bed. A regular schedule, not forcing sleep. Exercise we talked about, avoiding caffeine, avoiding alcohol. Um, not going to bed hungry. So sometimes there's mixed messages about this. So, you know, I don't want you to eat a big Thanksgiving dinner and then go to sleep because that can lead to indigestion and, and, and insomnia. Um, but it's also not good to go to bed hungry and that goes back to being generally comfortable in order for an optimum night of sleep. So a good bedtime snack is something with uh, like a complex carbohydrate with maybe a little protein. So think uh, multigrain bread with toasted with some peanut butter, for example, okay? Something light, something that's gonna be broken down slowly, so not refined sugars, um, and that's gonna help you sustain, you know, sustain the blood sugar in an even range and give you the best night of sleep, okay? We talked about the bedroom environment, and then the worries before bed. So, the what ifs, the, you know, the worries about the next day and all the, um, so that, that's one that, again, um, you, know, you want to take all the other steps to make bedtime a routine and an enjoyable process. Um, if people are really, you know, I think, you know, life is full of ups and downs and anxieties, and so it's normal to worry sometimes. And a night of poor sleep because of worry is going to happen, and it's probably not a big deal. It's when it becomes a nightly, you know, problem that it's an issue. Um, so I think number one is, you know, is the anxiety to the point where it actually needs to be addressed, you know, medically? You know, is there an anxiety disorder or a phobia of some sort? Okay, so that's one thing. But barring that, 
an effective strategy, which might sound silly, but is actually effective, is setting aside a worry time during the day, okay? So, you know, I'm gonna take the half hour at three o'clock p.m. to sit down and, you know, and, and, work, and not worry, <laughs> not, you know, not necessarily to worry during that time, but to think about the things that need to be planned out for either for the next day or, uh, you know, finances or things like that. So, and the goal of that is so that when you're lying in bed, those thoughts are still going to come in your head, but it's easier to kind of put them off for later. Say, no, I've already thought about that, or I'll address it tomorrow. Like, now is not the time. And that, that takes practice, okay? I'm not saying that's easy, but those are the kind of things is that um, kind of, you know, just stopping thoughts doesn't work, but maybe delaying them can be helpful, okay? So one of the big behavioral recommendations for people that have insomnia is what we call stimulus control. And what that means is I want you to, your brain to associate the bed and the bedroom with sleep, okay? Um, so, you know, you have to you only go to bed when you're sleepy. Don't do other things in bed. Don't watch TV. Don't read. Don't worry. Don't eat. It's for sleep. We say the bed is for sleep and sex. That's it. If you're not falling asleep within 15 or 20 minutes, definitely get up and out of bed, ideally out of the bedroom. Go do something in another room, low light, relaxing, something boring. Um, I don't want you to think of that as productive time, so don't get chores done or do those worrying exercises. Read a boring magazine. Uh, if TV is the answer for you, that's fine. Turn on a boring TV show. And once you get drowsy, put that activity aside, go back to bed, and try to sleep again. It's basically, the, the more time you spend in bed doing other things, tossing, turning, reading, watching TV, it's, it's only confusing your brain making it think that that's what you're supposed to do in bed. And I want it to be a very automatic response when you get into bed that that's where sleep happens. So would working on a computer when you get up and can't fall asleep again be a bad thing because of the blue light? It's not ideal. So the question is what, you know, working on a computer, would that be a reasonable activity if you can't sleep? Right. Again, it's, it's, in, it's independent. So for some people, they might they tell me, you know, I go to sit down on the computer and uh, play a game for a few minutes and I start to feel drowsy, then that's okay, it's working for you. But it's not, it wouldn't be my first recommendation because of the blue light and it's easy when you're on the computer, whether it's email or the internet, to get kind of distracted. Mm -hmm. And I don't want you to get engaged in something. I want it to be kind of boring. Mm -hmm. yeah. This is gonna sound just like silliness, but a lot of times if I am tossing and turning, if I threaten myself with having to get back up, if I don't straighten out, I usually go to sleep. Oh. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so, so if you're lying there tossing and turning, you say to yourself, well, if I don't go to sleep, Right. I'm going to have to get up I'm and do something, and I'm not getting up, that kind of thing? Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't even say that. I just say, you know, if I don't go to sleep, I'm going to get up. Yeah. And then I go right to sleep. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's interesting. Um, I mean, part of that might be, part of that might be what we call um, paradoxical intention, okay? And what that means is part of the problem with insomnia is feeling like you're, tr you're trying to go to sleep, mm -hmm. right? So you're, you're laying there and just... What do I need to do? What do I need to do? And when you say to yourself, you know, well, I'm either going to sleep or I'm going to have to get up, you're kind of releasing control, and that can help people fall asleep. So I, it makes sense. 
it's kind of like threatening your body. If you don't straighten out, I'm going to get you out of it. <laughs> it's a way to think about it, but I think the idea is letting go of that effort to sleep. Why isn't it just your mother used to say, go to bed and go to sleep? Oh, yes, yes. So it's a threat in a way. It's a threat. <laughs> right. It goes back to childhood here. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, again, you want to make the, make the environment right and then let it happen. About the old time solution of a warm glass of milk. Um, so yeah, warm glass of milk. That's that's fine. It's a little you know, um, you know, if you have problems getting up to go to the bathroom a lot, you might want to limit the amount right, of milk. Right. But you know, it's a it's a it's a fine snack or bed. Another thing that actually has a lot of evidence for helping people with insomnia are formal relaxation therapies. So learning how to do progressive muscle relaxation, uh, where you kind of go through your body and flex and relax the muscles. That's, you know, that's actually a skill that when practiced has been shown in studies to be helpful for insomnia. And other types of relaxation as well, whether it's guided imagery, um, a breathing pattern, those are things that are worth time and effort learning and practicing to help with insomnia. So sleep restriction therapy, um, this is something that you can do on your own or with a therapist if you're, if you're seeing a therapist for insomnia, which we'll talk about. But one way to kind of optimize sleep quality is to, is to do this exercise. So one of the handouts um, on the table over there is the Sleep Diary from the National Sleep Foundation. And Sometimes sleep diaries can do more harm than good if you're trying to be very exact and you know, you know, thinking at night exactly what minute you're falling asleep. That's not necessary. You know, you just want to get an idea of, of how much you're sleeping. So what you do is you keep a sleep diary for one week, and then you calculate your average sleep time. Um, let's, so in this example, let's say on average you're sleeping six hours a night. Then what you want to do is restrict. A, you pick a sleep window. Okay? and limit it to that six hours of sleep. So the way to do that is you pick what time you want to get up. Um, let's, in this example, it's seven o'clock in the morning. So that's a fixed wake up time every day. And to make that a six hour sleep window, bedtime's gonna be one o'clock, okay? So that's your new sleep window. You can only sleep during that time. You have to stay up till one. If you do nap during the day, it can't be longer than 15 or 20 minutes, okay? and that's. Those are your rules for the next week. And then you keep the sleep diary, and after a week you calculate your sleep efficiency. So what you're writing down on this form is when you go to bed, how long it takes, you know, when you actually slept, and you're gonna calculate the amount of sleep time divided by the total time in bed, and it's gonna give you a number of sleep efficiency. So if you're being not very efficient at sleep, if it's less than 85% or so, that means I want you to go to bed 15 minutes later. So now your bedtime's 1.15 and 7, and you're going to do that for the next week, okay? If your sleep efficiency is greater than 85%, you're doing a good job. And if you're feeling rested, you don't have to do anything. Keep the schedule as it is. If you're sleeping very efficiently, but you're not getting enough, you know, you're still tired because you're sleep deprived, that's when you're able to move the bedtime back. So 12.45 instead of 1. So, you know, it involves a little math and a little thinking and a little homework, 
Um, but this is, this is a standard way to kind of figure out what's your optimal sleep window for night, for nighttime. And then you continue to do this um, and keep track and don't make any adjustments more frequently than once a week because your body needs time to adjust. Are there questions about that procedure? Yes. Yeah, I have a question. This brings up something. I, I, I understand you need to look at the clock if you're doing this. Right. But one of the um, things that I keep hearing over and over again is don't look at the clock. Yeah. So I have my, my blocked. Yeah. So I can't see what time I'm waking up because yep. I'm going to worry if it's 2 o'clock. Sure. Or 1 o'clock. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great um, question. But you have to look at the clock. You do. So how do you reconcile the recommendation to get the clock out of the bedroom and not worry about it with keeping a sleep diary? And that goes back to, you know, you do have to have some sense of when you're getting into bed. And, you know, if you're not sleeping and you're, and you're doing the sleep hygiene things, like getting up and out of bed, you know, glancing at the clock, it's finding a balance because you do have to have some idea, right? Um, and, and sometimes, you know, People have a sense like, oh, it probably took me 45 minutes to fall asleep last night, so I'm going to put that on the sleep diary. You know, doing some estimation um, is fine. This is to get an overall idea, but but you're absolutely right. What this can turn into is it can make things worse if people are like very you know vigilant and then oh I only slept four hours last night and that increases the anxiety. So you do have to be careful with with this. Now, I mentioned uh, doing this with a therapist. So cognitive behavioral therapy is in a, very, it's a very effective form of therapy that can be used for lots of different problems, anxiety, depression, um, ADHD, lots of different problems. But there is a specific type of CBT for insomnia specifically. And we do have a therapist at Dartmouth who does this. It's her specialty, and she's very good at it. Um, and what it involves, it's, it's a time-limited therapy. So you see her for an average of eight sessions, either every week or every other week. Um, you keep a sleep diary. It usually lasts two to three months. And it's basically, it's kind of like having a personal trainer for your sleep. So, you know, I can give you all these recommendations, you know, until the cows come home. It's hard, it's hard to put some of these into place. So having someone to be kind of, uh, Answer to answer to about how these things go or troubleshoot. How are these recommendations actually going to fit in my life? Uh, that's what the therapy is good for. Um, it's it's excellent. It has a lot of good data that it's an effective therapy. And if you compare medications for sleep to cognitive behavioral therapy, they're equally effective. When you take away the medicines, the insomnia comes back. When you're done with the cognitive behavioral therapy you're still getting the benefit. So it's a non-medication effective way to treat insomnia. So let's talk about medications for sleep. So in my mind, you know, sleep aids can be a helpful tool, but are not the best treatment for chronic insomnia, particularly in older adults, okay? And part of the reason for that is that when you take them away, the insomnia tends to come back. There's a lot of side effects, um, including for some of the types of medications, physical and psychological dependence or addiction to the medication. Um, I, think that, I think that medications have their place in certain cases. You want to have reasonable expectations for the medicine, so it's not a medicine that you take and then 15 minutes later you're out. It's something that helps, again, it's setting up that environment, it's helping along the natural process. And if you think of it as a tool, and you're doing the other things that we recommended, they can be reasonable. 
You shouldn't consume them with alcohol. Uh, you want to be careful if there's kidney or liver issues because of how the medications are metabolized. And if there's any concern for sleep apnea, like snoring or awake, you know, awakenings or sleepiness, sleep medicines can actually make sleep apnea worse. So you want to think about that uh, as well. I really don't encourage over-the-counter sleep aids um, because there's not a lot of data supporting their efficacy and they can cause side effects like confusion and sedation during the day. Um, I think there are better alternatives uh, that should be, you know, under the... If a physician recommends an over-the-counter sleep aid, maybe it's the right one for you, but in general, I wouldn't just go to the drugstore and, and get them and use them regularly. What do you think of Ovaltine? Ovaltine? <laughs> <laughs> you have to tell me exactly what it is. Oh, uh, it, it's totally yeah. kind of relaxing, and it's a, um, I find, you know, instead of cocoa yeah. uh, um, on a cold day, I'll have Ovaltine, and I think I sleep better. Yeah. Well, that might go back to, um, I'd have to look up exactly what, what is in yeah. Ovaltine. It's probably carbohydrate, maybe some protein, but it goes back to that kind of light, snack before bed. I, I think that's a good yeah. approach. And better than medication. Yes? Is there any uh, over-the-counter preparation that would combine anti-anxiety and a muscle relaxer? Uh, so the question is an over-the-counter medicine for anti-anxiety and muscle relaxant properties. Not to my knowledge. Um, are there any over-the-counter muscle relaxants? Not to my knowledge. Not to my knowledge. So what are the adverse effects of these medications? I mean, you know, the goal is to improve sleep, but that can go a little too far and cause sedation during the day. Uh, it can cause confusion, uh, activities during the night like wandering, um, balance problems, falls, uh, which is a big concern in, the, in older adults. Um, and it can impair performance in daytime activities. And one thing that I found very interesting, there was a big study that was done, and it looked at adults over the age of 60 who were taking some kind of medication for sleep, whether that's one of the, you know, like Ativan or Clonopin, Ambien, uh, Amitriptyline, sedating antidepressants, a lot of different types of medications. There was a very mild, so when people reported how, how much the medications helped them, there was some improvement. People would say it helps my sleep quality, my total sleep time, how often I wake up. But if you looked at all the responses, very mild benefit, okay? But then if you look at the adverse effects, like the confusion or falls or uh, imbalance, it was two to five fold increase in side effects versus a benefit. So. You know, as a physician, that's that's a big issue, okay? Because again, e you know, each patient I see is an individual case, and we're going to make that call. But knowing that in a big study population, the really I can say the risks aren't worth the benefit, basically, on a grand scale. So, um, I think it's best to not use medication for sleep when whenever possible. So if you, if you have insomnia, if you're concerned about not sleeping during the night uh, in any kind of pattern, what I would do, my recommended approach would be to talk with your primary doctor, make sure underlying medical conditions, you know, if there's anxiety or depression, um, that they're addressed. Um, 
If you have a suspicion for a sleep disorder, one of the things we talked about today, ask for a referral to come and see us and talk to us more about it and get that addressed. Um, and also we had mentioned taking a look at your medication regimen, make sure that activating meds are in the daytime and sedating meds are at night. And then take one or two or a few more of these sleep diaries, keep track for a few weeks, and that's actually, you know, we're, doctors love data, okay? So we love to have a look at, you know, oh, you're sleeping this and this is what you're doing. That gives us more information. Um, so keep the diary, show it to your doctor, work on some of the behavioral recommendations. And if those attempts aren't successful, or you're doing all these things already and you're still having insomnia, then I think it's worth talking to your doctor about a sleep referral to come see us uh, for a thorough evaluation, okay? And what we do in the sleep clinic is you know, we talk to you about your sleep pattern, uh, symptoms during the day, um, you know, uh, movement at night, breathing at night, restless legs. We put it together with your medical history and, and, and try to get a good picture of what's going on. Um, and if it's insomnia, we address it the way we've talked about. Um, if we think there might be something else going on, we test for it and treat it. So it's worth thinking about. And as far as medications for sleep, they do have their place, um, but I think they should often be short-term and with caution in people who are oversleeping. So that's the end of the presentation. Um, and I want to encourage any questions or, or comments. Um, with the, uh, one of the things about the sleep apnea, uh, it said um, you need to know um, your oxygen Help me. Uh, anyway, the oxygen saturation is there, or any, level. is there any way to to do that yourself at home to, to monitor your so the question level? yeah the question was about knowing oxygen levels during sleep because of the which is core so when people have obstructive sleep apnea and they're not moving as much air it can lead to oxygen drops during the night is there any way to know at home or check for at home there's really not um, you can get over the counter uh, oximeters, I think, that you put on your finger and show you your oxygen levels. But if, when you're, you know, when you're awake, even if you wake up right from sleep and put it on, you're in a different state than when you're asleep. Um, I suppose if you had one that's constantly running and you put it on and have someone else check it when you're sleeping, that would be helpful. But a lot of these desaturations occur kind of periodically, yeah. so it's, it's more about the long-term assessment so probably so, not so the monitor does it read right on the monitor itself or is it plugged into some machine or? well the ones that you buy over the counter are just on themselves so okay. you know the, the digital number is right yeah. there on the on the sensor um, when we order overnight oxygen testing through like formally through a home care company it's often something that doesn't have the number on it and it's recording data um, and then we kind of look at the report from there these uh, devices that you wear on your wrist give you all this feedback. How, how do you react to, to the use of those? Yeah, so the question about like activity trackers and sleep trackers that you wear on your, on your wrist, I think, um, I, I, I like them. I think they're a good tool to kind of um, keep people paying attention to their level of activity and their sleep patterns. I don't think that the ones out there that claim to tell you about different stages of sleep or assess for sleep apnea or sleep disorders, I wouldn't put a lot of faith in that. But if you're using it to keep a long time, you know, 
or, or a long-term uh, track of your sleep pattern, how many hours you're getting. I think it's a good tool. Um, and I have had people come in with a report and they say, it's saying I wake up you know, this many times a night. Sometimes it's pretty accurate, um, but it, you know, they're all different and it's hard to, none of them are validated for medical you know, testing, but I, I like them. Uh, do you have recommendations about managing jet lag? <laughs> managing jet lag. Uh, yeah, I, I think that the things that can be helpful, so melatonin can be used. Um, it's a, it's a, it gets very complicated because it depends on how many time zones you're crossing. It depends on whether you're going east or west. Um, there are some websites out there. Um, that are actually, you put in your home destination and where you're going, and I, I, I would have to look into giving you the exact web address because I don't know it offhand, but you put in that information and it kind of does the calculation for you. So it tells you in the couple weeks per, before your trip how to start adju adjusting your sleep time to have the maximal, or I guess I should say minimal, uh, adjustment when you get to your destination. Um, and then melatonin, again, depending on when you take it, it, it depends on a lot of different factors. Um, but it, it is an adjustment for, for a lot of people. I have a friend who says he adjusts his time, he eats meals to yeah. European time yeah. uh, ahead of time, and, and that helps. I think that's, yeah, that's a great idea. So in preparing for uh, cross-time zone travel, uh, some of the biggest cues for our circadian rhythm are light, um, you know, meals, um, and then sleep, of course. So trying as best you can in the couple weeks before travel to get in that mode is going to minimize adjustment. I used to work with government documents and the government put out something for their ambassadors or, or travelers yes. and it had to do with the diet, changing the diet at least like a week before. Maybe you can find it on the internet, I don't know. But they used to have a document at uh, Baker Library. Certain that, foods you eat or is it well, more just the time you eat? No, I think it was certain foods and when. like proteins and things like that. Yeah, so probably probably good general nutrition guidelines and then the timing to kind of match up when it's going to be at your destination makes sense for, for cross-time zone travel. Yeah. So that might work when um, with the change from standard time to daylight savings and that sort of thing too? Yeah. Um, yeah, so when we're switching between daylight savings time and not, um, some people do have trouble adjusting to that. Um, and I do think that in those cases, kind of in the weeks leading up to it, uh, kind of preparing for what your new schedule is going to be um, can be helpful. Um, most people just kind of have a rough week and then <laughs> but For no good yeah. reason. For no good reason, right. <laughs> yeah. It's like denying the entire population. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about the reading issue? Because my problem is insomnia and restless life. And, um, Reading has always been this sort of wonderful transition from what's happening in the, from the real life to the not real life. Yeah. And and I love re I, I have a new bed. I love it. I love reading in bed. But can it be uh, an irritant? Uh, yes. Too. Yes. I should go in the living room and read and then come back. And Correct. So I think that I think that reading is great. Yeah. I think that it's good to be part of your routine, but just don't do it in bed okay. if you have trouble falling asleep. I love reading. <laughs> make, you know, make a make a recliner in the living room okay. as comfy as it can be, okay. uh, but don't sleep there. When All you're right. drowsy, put it yeah. down and go yeah. to bed. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
Would you say something about circadian rhythms? Yes. We're gonna oh, yeah. Do? yeah, so the question about circadian rhythms and uh, specifically the, a case where somebody sleeps during the day and then is up during the night, and, and what does that mean? You know, people do have uh, different uh, circadian timing, um, and I, I, you know, I, I think there's two things that people are kind of inherently born with. So one, I mean, one, we talked about sleep need, right? So do you need seven or eight hours? People are also born with a circadian rhythm, and that's very hard to change. The other thing that's individual is how sensitive we are to changing that circadian rhythm. So there are people out there who are morning, you know, morning people or larks that wake up at 4 a.m. every day, and you you ask them to stay up until 11 p.m. for like in a show or an event, it's just never going to happen. It's just they can't. They can't function that way. Then there are other people who are a little bit more flexible with their circadian rhythm. So they might be able to stay up one night um, and then sleep in the next day a little bit, but not by much. And you know they're going to adjust back. Bottom line, if people are getting sufficient sleep in a 24-hour period and they're feeling like it's restorative, then it's, it's, it's not a problem necessarily of sleeping at odd hours, right? So if people, you know, I've seen people that sleep 4 a.m. to 2 p.m. or 4, yeah, 4 a.m. to 2 p.m. and again, their life just functions on that cycle and it works for them and they're feeling rested and there's nothing really medically wrong with that. Um, it, it's, it's sometimes what gets in the way is the social uh, you know, aspects of that. Um, does that answer your question? Or? Yeah, it was not the answer I was hoping for. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, I mean, the other thing is, I mean, some, I mean, we see this in people who work shift, shifts overnight. Um, that can be very difficult for people to adjust to, and it leads to sleep deprivation. Yeah. And, yeah. But if you, ha if you are someone where your circadian rhythm is very flexible and you choose to sleep during the night and or during the day and be up at night, I, w I can't say there's anything medically wrong with that. <laughs> Might have an impact on your marriage. Correct. Yes. Correct. So social, you know, job, marriage, yes. Okay. Uh, narcolepsy, is that a rare condition or do you see that? Uh... Narcolepsy is rare. Narcolepsy is rare. Um, I don't know the statistics, but uh, you know, I, I, there's a handful of patients in, in my clinic that have narcolepsy. There are other things in that category. Uh, one's called idiopathic hypersomnia, which basically just, you know, you have a sleepy brain. You need a lot of sleep, your sleep isn't as refreshing, and it's not due to an underlying sleep apnea or something like that. Again, that's not very common, but it's more common than narcolepsy. Um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Do you happen to know if that's covered by Medicare by chance? Oh, that's a really good question. So, is cognitive behavioral therapy covered by Medicare for insomnia? I think so. I I, I believe it is. Okay. Um, and when you talk, you know, if you get referred for CBT and you get scheduled, you can always talk to that office beforehand to make sure. A lot of times. If CBT for insomnia isn't covered, CBT for anxiety or for depression are covered. And a lot of times when I'm seeing people with insomnia, there's often anxiety, so I might just code both of those things and, and that gets it covered. What happens in the brain when you're uh, awakened, when you're in deep sleep, but you're awakened suddenly? Mm -hmm. What happens in the brain? Uh, <laughs> 
so I don't know exactly, but I think when you're in deep sleep, those deep, you know, the slow wave sleep, um, it's very difficult to wake up from that. Um, and so those are the times when you wake people up and they're groggy, they're not making sense, you know, they're kind of caught in between that deep sleep and wakefulness. And I think what it is, is it's the brain, part of the brain's firing and still sleeping, and part of it's trying to wake up, and that's, that's the zone in which you get sleepwalking and confusional arousals and things like that. Um, back to the question about CBT and puppets. To be referred for CBT, do you need to have the sleep study in the, the sleep lab first? No, you don't. So if you, if you have you know, insomnia and you see your primary doctor and they're not suspicious of any other disorder, like a sleep disorder, and they would like to refer you to CBT, that's completely reasonable, um, and they can do that. Um, I was wondering um, how many hours is required for a deep, that deep REM sleep? Mm -hmm. Because all through the night, I have some horrible issues, but all through the night, I'm tossing and turning, and I'm being aware that I'm tossing and turning. I hear even when, when the furnace kicks on and off, I'm hearing that. I'm hearing the dog doing her scratching and itching, and I'm hearing that. So. I could sleep right now. Mm -hmm. That's how tired I am. Yes. But um, so I'm wondering, actually, how much sleep am I getting if I'm my brain is can't shut this stuff out? I'm yeah. hearing it all. Yeah. I'm hearing the wind blowing at night. And yeah. I can't sleep through it. Yeah. So a couple comments about that. Um, so the question, I mean, what started is how much sleep do I need to get into those? How many hours to get to that deep sleep? Um, I mean, in general, so a couple things. So deep sleep is actually completely different than REM sleep, right? Mm -hmm. So deep sleep is non-dream sleep, uh, slow wave sleep, we call it. Um, and that happens mostly in the first third of the night. Um, REM sleep or dream sleep is actually quite close to wakefulness. So it's not, it's not you know, it's, it's much easier to wake up from a dream than it is from deep sleep, okay? Mm -hmm. um, in general, cycles between the sleep stages take about 90 minutes on average. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really hard to say. I, I think that if, if someone were asleep for a period of two hours, they're probably going to get a lot of their slow wave sleep that they're going to get for the night in that two hours. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, you know, the brain kind of goes back and forth kind of throughout these stages over the course of the night. And the other thing I would say is that stage one sleep is very light, and it can actually be mistaken for wakefulness because you're right, you're right kind of on that, you know, because mm -hmm. it's normal. Normal sleep architecture is you're awake, you go through stage one for maybe a few minutes, and then you're asleep. Some people stay in that stage one sleep that's very light, um, and it is still sleep, but it can feel like wakefulness because you, you know, you, you might still be a, Attending to some of the external stimuli, um, so it's you know there's a lot of factors in your question. Um, yeah, because I'm even aware of um, I'm having I'm having some issues with my body temperature right now, mm -hmm. and I'm even aware of flapping the the blankets on the on and off all through the night. Yeah. So, yeah. and I'm really in bed only about four hours, mm -hmm. and so I'm sitting here thinking I'm wondering if I've trained myself to be able to still function on four hours of sleep. Yeah. I've done it for so long. Yeah, that, 
that doesn't happen. Uh, so people do, you know, sometimes say, "Oh, I just I'm in the habit of getting four hours a night." And um, I think we, you know, we we adapt because we have, functionally because we have to. But right. you know, it's still sleep deprivation. It you is. know what I mean? Um, uh, so have you addressed this with the sleep clinician? Because it sounds no, like I you haven't. Know, okay, that might be a good idea to talk to your primary doctor and see if there might be something underlying. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. Um, the stage one sleep that's so light, is that still, like, if you say, trying to determine how many hours you slept, do yeah. you count it? Um, yeah. So I, and you're saying that it's easy to think that you're really awake. Mm -hmm. So then, how do you know what, what to count? Yeah, you, know? you wouldn't know. You oh, wouldn't so know because it's based on brain waves. That would be I, like, okay. I would keep, I count it as wake. If it feels like wake, count it as wake. Thank you guys very much. Thank you. 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 Thank you